Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. Robert Mitchum holds a special place in the hearts of many film lovers and the history of the medium. With his hooded eyes, understated mannerisms, bad boy personal life, and louche sexuality, he stood apart from the rest of the classical Hollywood establishment. In the current issue of Film Comment, Imogen Sarah Smith writes, quote, It is harder to trace Mitchum's influence as an actor than as a hipster saint an icon of a shadowy, counterculture America. Lester Bangs included him in the lineage of punk, Lou Reed name-checked him on a Velvet Underground album, and one of his final film appearances was in Jim Jarmusch's surreal, dystopian western, Dead Man. He'd come a long way from Hopalong Cassidy B-Westerns, yet in important ways, he'd never changed." End quote. In honor of the retrospective that's part of the New York Film Festival, I was joined by... Imogen Sarah Smith, I'm a film writer. Steve Mears, I'm a writer and assistant editor for Film Comment. And... Kent Jones, I'm the co-programmer of the Robert Mitchum Retrospective and the director of the New York Film Festival. To discuss Mitchum's strengths and singular piece in film history. Thank you all for coming. So, Imogen, you wrote a feature about Mitchum for the September-October issue, only available in print, or if you buy the app. There are very interesting phases of his career, you know, as working in classical Hollywood, working in new Hollywood, even working in the 90s with Jim Jarmusch on uh, Dead Man. For you, what is that uniqueness that draws you to him? Well, I'm not I'm not sure I can narrow it down to one thing. It's partly that he is, I guess, one of the purest examples of pure cinema acting, kind of Mm -hmm. acting for the camera, this sort of extreme inwardness. And I'm fascinated by the, sh- the sheer difficulty of analyzing what it is that he's doing in his films that makes him so powerful. You know, and the fact that there's been this kind of debate throughout his, for, certainly in his time, about whether he was even a you know good actor at all. And he liked to say, you know, people can't decide if I'm the greatest actor in the world or the worst. And it is really hard, even if you're someone who totally connects with him and finds him really powerful in almost everything he does, it's hard to say what exactly he's doing. It all seems to be going on under the surface. And I'm fascinated by that. And then I guess just Two other things. One is his extreme ambivalence about acting and about being a movie star is kind of fascinating. That's not totally unique to him, but I think there's almost no one else who went to the degree he went in terms of kind of speaking derogatorily about his own work and his own career and his films and having this real reluctance about fame, about celebrity reluctance to admit that he really was as committed as he kind of obviously was. And then lastly, he's a pretty perfect example of the sort of actor as auteur idea that somehow, even though, as he told it, he just kind of took whatever junk came along, somehow there is this real through line 
in his career with these themes that just crop up constantly, especially, I would say, in his earlier, in his first couple of decades with kind of these themes about loneliness, wandering, being a drifter, being an outsider. And, and you know, he really has a kind of character that he is in American cinema. Absolutely. Well, I've, I grew up watching film noir. That was probably my favorite genre as a teenager. And there's just something about him that I think he is the most existential of all the noir icons. Mm. Because there's just a real defeatism in his DNA. You know, you see Bogart and he's throwing punches and making speeches and sweating. And you feel like he still has skin in the game to a degree. Mitchum, you know, he meets the demands of the plot, but you you feel that he knows how it's going to turn out, and he doesn't try especially hard to effectuate an outcome. And that's the quintessence of noir to me, and I think he embodies that greater than any, I mean, you mean the noir actors are legion, but I don't see that in like Alan Ladd, mm-hmm. Brian Donlevy, Lawrence Tierney. I think he's pretty singular in that respect. Mm. I think that the whole thing about like, you know, being the star and coming out with the anti-stardom rap is sort of like Alfred Hitchcock saying all actors are cattle. It's publicity stuff. And, you know, it doesn't really, it's just, it's just a way of like dealing with it. On the other hand, in his case, of course, (laughs) you know, he had some, but you know, he had the marijuana rap and, you know, I mean, he never hid I don't think he would have tolerated some studio hack like Eddie Mannix, you know, following him around and trying mm-hmm. to clean up his messes. I think he was very happy to leave messes behind him. And by the way, in the Bruce Weber film about him, Nice Girls Don't Stay for Breakfast, that we're showing as a, a work in progress, he, <laughs> there's a lot more to that story about his jail sentence that I won't tell because it's just so, <laughs> it's a story that Brenda Vaccaro tells. She was his lover for a while in mm. the 60s. I think that as far as his acting goes, I think that something that Imogen said about the actor as auteur idea is it's an idea that I find very dubious in general, but in his case, I think I I would I can get with it and I can get with it because let me talk about a movie that is not in the retrospective and that is not a film noir, but that was made during the same period, a holiday affair, which is on the face of it this very innocuous kind of Christmas movie. Janet Lee has a son, and I can't remember. Oh, we were just talking about yeah. him, actually. Right. Gordon no. Gabbert. Yeah, that's right. And Wendell Corey. Exactly, and she's going to marry Wendell Corey, but she meets Robert Mitchum and falls in love. And the thing about his presence in that movie is that it adds a layer of loneliness, seems like the right word, that feels very real and has absolutely very little and perhaps nothing to do with the actual script and the action of the film. I think that as as an actor, in terms of what he does, I would say that a good way to start talking about Robert Mitchum is to start thinking of him in a very in a musical way. And what I mean by that is he's a guy who, to me, finds the music of the role moves with it when he doesn't find it, which is frequent, because <laughs> um, he made. I mean, you know, this is a guy who made a lot of movies, and a lot of them aren't very good. Um, you know, for instance, you know, he made Farewell, My Lovely, where he's absolutely incredible. Then he turned around and did a remake of The Big Sleep set in London. That's one of the most god-awful, you know, <laughs> films ever made, and where he's just like, he could be asleep and he could not be, and you'd never know the difference. But, you know, 
Set in England. I mean, whose idea was that? It's just like insane. But when he did find the music, it was in a in a part that he found a worthy of him. So we're talking about Cape Fear, Night of the Hunter, Out of the Past, and then later, Pearl, My Lovely, Friends of Eddie Coyle, Ryan's Daughter. You know, he he. You can feel him working from the rhythm of what he's doing. Like with Friends of Eddie Coyle, the Boston accent isn't always perfect. The cadences, however, are. And so I think that that's, you can also see it in that incredible interview that he did with Dick Cavett. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, my God, that's. Yeah. I mean, I I couldn't agree more. And I I wrote this in my feature, both about the way that he handled dialogue, which of course he liked to refer to as the lyrics, that he's delivering it almost more as a singer would with a sense of a beat, not that he's necessarily on the beat sometimes, you know, he's often kind of behind the beat, but it's that sense of and of there being a through line, but I think it's also in the way he moves. And so just his presence, you know, his physicality, his stillness, the way that he can find the kind of melodic line in an action sequence. Um, And he even talked about this sometimes, about, you know, controlling the pace of the picture. That was something he was actually conscious of doing. And that's a very different way from the way we often approach talking about acting in terms of accessing some kind of emotion or Mm -hmm. creating a character and you don't really think about Mitchum's acting in that way but I think it is very much about him having that kind of musicality and that giving that kind of wholeness that there is when he's really present and as you say he's not always really present. But. Yeah, he's present when it's worthy of him. <laughs> Although, to yeah. me, even, you know, sometimes even when he is disengaged, it kind of works in the movie because of what Steve was saying about him playing this kind of, these kind of defeatist characters. There's this sense of, like, disappointment. But is it the disappointment of Mitchum in the movie that he's making or his character in the kind of life that he's living and the fact that nothing makes any sense and that he knows that he's going to lose in the end. So sometimes it, it works at least better than most actors could get away with being sort of disengaged to that level. He still somehow brings something. No, I remember, and you bring this up in your piece, uh, something Roger Ebert said, where he always feels older than the other actors, even if they're older than him. Mm. And I think that's a really, really present in Out of the Past, where he's supposed to be Kirk Douglas is the big crime boss that has all this power. And you're like, this is like a college boy. Like, there's something just really, and he seems a lot younger than Mitchum does. Like he seem he does seem like a boy. And the idea that there are all these heavies around him and there's something quietly tough about him that none of these other actors really have. And it it's just really captivating. And I and I also like that performance because he just goes between he he does a nice job of what I think, you know, you can see it in like Cape Fear too, of just going between sort of like pleasantness, but also sort of like this roiling something under the surface that is um, capable of anything. And and just to, to go off of uh, always seeming older, his star-making role was the story of G.I. Joe, right? where he plays the uh, commander of an infantry squad in Italy in World War II, and he was 28 when he made that. Mm-hmm. And you watch it, and he just, he has this, has this paternal protectiveness yeah. to him, and all the men adore him and look up to him, but he's not much older than they are. And there's this jarring moment where he turns to Burgess Meredith, who's playing the war correspondent, Ernie Pyle, and and he says, my father likes your column. And it makes you think, 
he's a generation younger <laughs> than Burgess Meredith, but he has been aged, as, as had Mitchum, by experience into this prematurely middle-aged soul. And it's interesting that I think Mitchum hardly ever has parents in movies. Right. And that is part of that. He is always the one who is older and, you know, he often is interacting with children, but almost never with someone who's in a, it's almost hard to imagine him having a parent. A lot of it is this sense of disillusionment Mm -hmm. and, you know, world weariness of his somehow having already seen it all and understood it all. And as you say, he had that at a really young age and in, in out of the past, it's that sense of disenchantment that makes him seem so much more knowing and so much more aged by life than anybody else in the film. I think his acting in Out of the Past, the way that he acts and the way the film is directed are absolutely one-to-one. Yeah. I think it's, it, I don't know what kind of relationship he had with Jacques Turner, but, you know, there's a there's something about the way that the film moves that's uncannily in harmony with the way that he moves, and that's part of the magic of the movie, mm. you know. The dreaminess yes. of it, that kind of sense of drifting and floating. Yeah, because the film is, um, for people who haven't seen it, who really should see it, what are you doing with your life if you haven't seen this movie? Pause the podcast, go <laughs> yeah, watch it's it, fine. and come back. It's fine, come back later. Robert Mitchum plays Jeff Bailey, this guy who used to be uh, involved in crime, like a just sort of like a mobster with a partner and um he is you know stepped away from the criminal life settled down in this little uh town outside of lake tahoe and uh owns a a garage with a mute kid which is actually i think again the way that's used is very interesting but anyway he's summoned back into the criminal life and there's this prolonged flashback that makes up most of the movie which is very dreamlike and he's following this woman uh who's the former mall of his uh crime boss played by kirk Mm -hmm. douglas and you know, he follows her down to Mexico and then, you know, they sort of run off together. And it, it is very like, it was very much like a dream, the plot itself. And just um, Jacques Turner, another great, another very interesting career for that time. So It's like a dream and it's also like a film within a film, yeah. you know, and he narrates it. So mm-hmm. it's even more dominated by that sound that yes. he has. And that, I mean, just the title alone, Out of the Past, I feel like, half of his best movies could be called out of the past because that's basically what the plot is, is that something he's somehow, there's this pull of something in the past that he can't get away from or that's going to come back into his life. He is always someone with a past. I think the one thing that he really couldn't do was sort of be naive, be Mm -hmm. innocent or somebody who's kind of untouched by life. I just don't think that could ever work. No. (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't that great at comedy. But, you know, I also think there's a lot of this sense of amusement and humor. Sure. He's, he was not in many good comedies, but on the other hand, when he's in something that's totally humorless, and I think before, we were talking before the podcast, and Steve and I agreed that Not as a Stranger is perhaps his worst, one of his absolute worst movies, and it's got no humor whatsoever, and it just feels so wrong so for him. Lubrious, yeah. And, you know, if you listen to his interviews or read interviews with him, I mean, he was very funny off screen. Mm. So I feel like there's an an element, but it's often a kind of a gallows humor. I mean, there's a lot of great lines in Out of the Past that are, you know, you laugh at, but they're also like, 
I don't want to die, you know, neither do I, baby, but if I have to, I'm going to die last. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or There's a way to lose more slowly. Or even, you know, like Cape Fear or... Um, he's quite funny in that. He's very... And really fun. scary. Yeah, he does both in that. Again, like he, he's like, I th- again, I think when he's great, he does, he does sort of master Several these. things at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also even Night of the Hunter. Parts of that are totally terrifying and... And then maybe a little funny, and then a little mix of both. No, he, there's no doubt he's he's he is very funny, mm-hmm. but he doesn't do comedy. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, like you know, two for the seesaw, or what a way yeah, to go, or stuff like that. You know, I mean, I think just, there's a kind of weight about his presence yes. that doesn't work it, in it, a comedy well. That's, that's I true. mean, El Dorado is maybe one of his better kinds of kind of basically a comedy, but it, but the humor is all very kind of morbid and it's all about aging and, yeah. you know, and he finds the comedy in contrast. So whenever yeah. he's paired with anybody prim right. or persnickety, maybe uh Deborah Carr and heaven knows Mr. Allison, he can be funny or he's just insouciant. Yes. You know, he just <laughs> can't be bothered and there's nothing funnier than that. Yeah. Yeah. He's also, I guess it's true that he has to be set, against something and i suppose that that's you know like in in el dorado he's very good but when he has to do the big comic number which is the potion that they cook up for him to i forget what are they trying to what's wrong with him sober him up up, yeah so they put the gunpowder arthur honeycutt and putting the gunpowder in it and then he has to go through his whole like comic routine it just kind of like you know it's it's Slightly funnier than James Conn pretending he's got the Chinese accent. Um, so, it's, um, but when he's setting himself off against something, then he's—it doesn't really matter what the setting is. It's mm-hmm. he always finds a way to incorporate you know, humor. He actually said in some interview that he didn't think of himself as being a complete actor because he was. Not he wasn't okay with making a fool of himself. He mm-hmm. couldn't sort of let go and just be foolish or be undignified. Right, I think right, that was right. he was kind of easily embarrassed, actually. And I think that's part of also why he doesn't work when he's being asked to really go through some kind of slapstick, you know, silliness. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think he's underrating himself. Because, As he often did. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, if you watch Night of the Hunter... That sort of like craziness that he gets into in that movie is something that really you have to be able to go there in order to yeah. do that. But and that's yeah. kind of the only time he really did. Exactly. And he, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like he did it because he had so much respect for Lawton and he sort of believed in what he was doing and he allowed Lawton to coax this performance out of him and then he never really did it again. So I, I mean, agree. he's. In Night he's, of the Hunter. I mean, in Cape Fear, actually, in, the, in Bruce's documentary. Polly Bergen walks through that, you know, really scary scene. And she said, you know, and when you're watching this scene, you can see him. I mean, you know, that's a different kind of thing that he's doing, but you can see him actually just building some kind of inner momentum. And it gets, and she said that after the camera stopped rolling, she said it was as if he was being woken up from a trance, mm-hmm. you know, and it feels that way when you're watching it. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen the whole movie, but. And he's also great in the Martin Scorsese remake. 
I guess so. He's, is he? He's there. <laughs> it's good that he showed up. <laughs> Which is what you could say about a lot of his movies. It's good that he showed it's up. It's good that he showed Thank up. Thank you. And he was, <laughs> he was never funnier than he was when giving interviews to the press. Oh, yes. Because yes. he yes. was so, I mean, just talking about himself, you know, I'm just trying to hold my gut in. Which it's, he does in Cape Fear. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely doing yes, that yes, a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's self-deprecating, and a lot of the time I think he's just kind of playing possum, but it's a riot, and mm-hmm. it, there's a real mm-hmm. verbal facility there that doesn't always come across in his roles. An interesting case of that is The Sundowners, yeah. where Mitchum is, uh, has to play an Australian settler, which is a bit of a stretch. But he's great. But he's great. Mm. It's the exception that proves so many rules. When you when you think about Robert Mitchum playing this itinerant patriarch of a sheep-droving family who crosses the outback in a wagon and sleeps wherever the sun goes down, hence the title. It doesn't sound like an intuitive fit for Robert Mitchum. There's you know there's no it's bright sun. There's no noir about it, but it brings qualities to the fore that were always there. Uh, warmth. Uh, this fatherly protectiveness that I was talking about with respect to the story of G.I. Joe, Mm -hmm. and which was also, you know, there throughout the rest of his 40s work, the the Red Pony holiday affair. And and so there's just this contentment to him that we hardly ever see. Mm. There's a wonderful scene toward the beginning where they're in their tent and he's just looking at Deborah Carr as she gets ready for bed. Oh, yeah. And you just see that he has, he has found a measure of fulfillment in his life that the rest of us will probably never find. Because he just looks at her so appreciatively. And the things that he says are kind of backhanded compliments. Right. You know, you, you know he's talking about how you, know, you look like a woman should. You're not a broomstick like those other Sheilas in town. You're, mm-hmm. And that's the other great thing about the film is that they both look very weathered. Yeah. They look like people who've spent their lives doing hard work. There's not a sheen to it. Fred Zinneman made it very realistically. But the conflict of it gets to something that Imogen said very astutely in the article, which is he doesn't really have a place in goal-oriented narratives. Mm-hmm. Because what does he actually want? <laughs> it's hard to tell sometimes. In Sundowners, all he wants is to maintain the status quo. He doesn't want a house. He doesn't want ties. He wants to go wherever the work is. If there's no droving work, he'll be a shearer. If there's no shearing, he'll breed horses. He just wants to be of the land. And that puts him in opposition to his family because it's his wife, Deborah Carr, and the son want to settle down. The son wants to enroll in school and have a quote-unquote normal life. And he doesn't want any part of that. And he feels his status slipping away. In particular, there's a, a, a character played by Peter Ustinov who strings along with them for a while. He's like the sea captain. Yeah, another... Ustinov was 39 when he did that. Yeah, Which is right? insane. Yeah. Another actor who could play way older. But anyway. Absolutely, yeah. And, and he kind of has the Mitchum insouciance there. Mm-hmm. But he, he plays this sea captain, if, you're, if you believe his tall tales. <laughs> and uh, he kind of introduces a worldliness that was missing from their lives and the son especially takes a shine to him and he takes the son to plays in town and introduces him to girls and Mitchum kind of can't compete with that because all he really has to offer his son is a work ethic Mm -hmm. and kind of the 
simple sensory pleasures of life, like a beer at the end of a long week. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful scene where he just he realizes that his son doesn't respect him anymore, and he sits at the end of a bar, and everybody's just ignoring him. And you see that this great oak, Robert Mitchum, could be so recessive as to almost disappear in the corner of the frame. And it's just, you see this movie, like you almost come to laugh, and you stay for the poignancy of it. Yeah. And then just a quick word on the accent. That's another myth we should dispel real quick, which is that he wasn't a great technical actor. He had every arrow in his quiver that every other actor did, too. He could do accents. There was a great story that he that uh, Roger Ebert reported from the set of Ryan's Daughter where David Lean asked him if he could do an Irish accent and he said what county <laughs> like he knew what he could do despite his protestations to the contrary and to my ear his Australian accent is is faultless not that that's the whole performance but right. the performance wouldn't really work if it was if it rang false right 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 it goes in and out but that's that's fine Oh, well. I think. Well, I'm not. I'm <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe you know more Aussies than I do. Uh, I do. I'm sure. Go to the app. Unfortunately, lot. we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. The one thing I would add to the Sundowners, I mean, I agree with everything you say, is just, you know, you have to mention how wonderful he is with Deborah Carr and the fact that they loved working together, you know, and she talked about meeting him and, and for the when they worked together the first time was Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, which is a movie with, like, the worst premise of all time and yet it managed you know this a nun and a marine are stranded together on a desert island and yet they make it you know they're quite wonderful together and she said she was really kind of you know had heard all these stories about what a tough guy he was what a you know she was kind of intimidated and instead he was wonderful he was a gentleman he was poetic he was kind you know and they really work wonderfully together and it's kind of a a bit of an you know they seem like opposites. He's very rough-hewn. She's very impeccable and very British, but they just have a wonderful rapport. And I think his best partnerships in acting were almost always with women. And, and it is, as you say, it's the way he can appreciate them is wonderful. And the film that I wanted to talk about, um, which is Nicholas Ray's The Lusty Men, actually has some things in common with the Sundowners, I mean, it's also about people living this itinerant lifestyle. It's about the rodeo and about this conflict between the woman who wants to settle down and have a home and, you know, the men who kind of want to keep pursuing the next thing and traveling. And it has it it has this great sense of kind of loneliness and yearning about it, which is sort of unspoken on Mitchum's part. I mean, I guess... Part of why I wanted to talk about it is just that the the opening of the movie to me is one of my absolute favorite things in his career and, and you know, also in Ray's career. It opens with this wonderful scene. Mitchum is playing a rodeo rider and at the very beginning you see him come out and he, he falls and he's, you know, trampled by this 
bull in the ring. And then, and, and, it, and it's kind of, you get the, the music and the noise and the crowd and all this, you know, of the rodeo. And then it cuts to this scene of where the, the fairground is emptied out. It's dusk, it's dusty, and there's kind of all these papers and garbage blowing around. And just Mitchum alone comes limping across this space and just crosses the screen and just the way he walks and the way he shows you how, you know, much he hurts. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, you see this person of tremendous strength and grace and he has this little bag over his shoulder and you realize, I mean, this is basically all this man owns, you know, it's all he has. And there's a long, long wordless sequence with no dialogue where he you know, he hitches a ride, he he goes back to visit this little shack where he was born, and he gets there and he crawls under the house and he finds these little things that he had left there, you know, as a child. And it's really poignant, and it's all done in silence. And it's him at his most present and most sensitive. And then it's that there's this sense of ambivalence and conflict in his character throughout. He kind of attaches himself to this married couple and coaches the husband, played by Arthur Kennedy, because he can no longer really be a rodeo rider. He's been injured too many times, and he was a big star, and now he's kind of washed up. But so he he but he coaches this husband, and he falls in love with the wife, you know, and, and it's sort of like this sense that he wants... He wants to, to, to have a, a wife, to have a home, but he's going, he's pursuing it in this almost self-defeating way that mm-hmm. by falling in love with someone he knows he can't have. And the sense of that he sort of loves the world of the rodeo and at the same time sees through it and sees, you know, he says, broken bones, broken bottles, broken everything. You know, it's this very melancholy sense of people, you know, these men who go out every day and risk their lives and, and get injured and and the, the constant sort of sense that they have to make themselves do it again to prove that they're men to prove that they're not afraid and the women who are kind of having to live with them and live with this constant fear mm-hmm. I mean it's a wonderful sense of this world and the, Mitchum is so comfortable in it and at ease in it and at the same time you feel that that the you know the sadness of it has really sunk into him and that he understands it. And it's another, it's one of many of his films where he has a kind of relationship with a younger man. And it's, again, that sense of him always being the older one, um, a younger man who, you know, wants to be like him and sort of is either admiring or often jealous, Mm -hmm. you know, resents him because he is clearly always going to be the better man. And that's exactly what happens and this relationship with the Arthur Kennedy character fall, kind of falls apart. So it just, it's a lot of the themes. And apparently, I mean, apparently the film was at least partly written by Mitchum and Ray. I mean, it, it had several scripts that sort of didn't work out and they were kind of writing it or making it up as they went along, which they also apparently did on Macau. Mm-hmm. So I think it's one of the films that was the most personal for him, I mean, you know, not a, not to the degree maybe of Thunder Road, which was really his project the whole way, but mm-hmm. but a film that he clearly really feels deeply about. You you watch Rodeo Writers and you're like, how could anybody do this? But you watch The Lusty Men, and you're like, oh, 
this is why, because they have nothing else in their lives. And I think that's what else like makes it feel personal because it, it shows that he's tied to this. He can't do anything else. Even if he's on the sidelines, this is the only life he could ever possibly right. continue with. Right. And yet there's a distinction between him who really kind of understands mm-hmm. and sees the truth of it versus the Arthur Kennedy character who is very caught up in, you know, the glamour and right. feeling that he's such a big man and kind of going off gambling, drinking, you know, he's kind of, he doesn't have the the awareness that Mitchum has. And yet right. the tragedy of his character is that he kind of sees it for what it is. And yet, as you say, can't ever separate himself from it. Mm-hmm. He knows this is the only world that he can really exist in. As you say, the opening of the movie, the whole opening passage is like one of the great passages in in American movies. There's a nice moment in, in well, nice moment. It's a moment in Lightning mm-hmm. Over Water, the, the film that Vim Vendors made about Nick Ray as he was dying of cancer. It was a very uncomfortable experience, but where they're talking about the scene where he sticks his hand under the, goes under the house and pulls out the the toy gun, right? It's a toy gun yeah, and a and tobacco a, can with two nickels with, in with it. And he says, that was a lot of money for me when yep, I was a that's kid. that's right. And I think that the meeting between him and Nick Ray, at least Nick Ray at that point in his, in his career, was a really, you know, felicitous thing. It's interesting because Arthur Kennedy and Susan Hayward, to me, seem extremely incongruous as rodeo people. Arthur Kennedy yeah. looks like, you know, he's... He seems yes. perfect and some came running as a petulant Midwestern banker. And he also seems perfect as, a, you know, living on Broadway or something, Lawrence of Arabia. But as a rodeo writer, it's a little bit of a stretch. Susan Hayward, too. But it's okay because the movie builds a net big enough to contain that. And the people around the edges of the film in this kind of little world that's created among all these lonely souls that congregate in loneliness in these little trailers. I mean, what's the... What's the scene with the woman whose husband has been killed? There's a no. there's a woman who's he, her, her husband has this terrible her husband has a, has a terrible head, right? scar yes. from being gored and yes. she she's okay. the one who talks about they have to keep going out there yes. because once they get to be afraid then they're finished and so they have to keep proving to themselves that they're not afraid even as they're destroying themselves yes. and then yes he he ends up being killed and the way that the Rodeo footage is incorporated into the rest of the movie is absolutely amazing. You know, you see the way, I mean, the Susan Hayward character always sees, at least initially, sees Mitchum as this kind of bad influence, you know, who is sort of seducing her husband away from having a settled life and being responsible Mm -hmm. and saving money to get a house and so forth. And then over the course of the movie, she comes to see that actually Mitchum is the one that she can depend on. Right. And you see that everyone in this world kind of looks to Mitchum as somebody who is reliable, who mm-hmm. is, you know, a good person. Yeah. But it's in this very subtle way that's very beautiful. And there's a child mm-hmm. as well whom he has a kind of friendship with, the little girl who's Arthur Honeycutt's daughter. daughter. That's right. It's interesting but, what you were saying before about Bogart. Because Bogart actually wasn't really a film noir character. I mean, he, he, he predates it, and then he's really part of another world. But then with Nick Ray, he was. I was going right. to say, in a lonely place, <laughs> yeah. you can't place, yeah. say that. Yeah. And it, yeah, and I think that those... when Before Nick Ray started working in color, I have to say that those four, you know, they live by night in a lonely place, lusty men and on dangerous, on dangerous ground. ground. You've got a real 
those are singular. And you can easily see why he and Mitchum would have connected so much. I mean, because all those themes about loneliness and the kind of the Mm. search for a home and, and this kind of fleeting sense of having a home that never you know, lasts and yes. the sense of, of wandering and the kind of love of rural America and the sense of travel are um, all things they would obviously have connected about. Yeah. And also the sense of always seeing themselves as outsiders, especially in Hollywood and as people who were not willing to play by the rules. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and Nick Ray had the relationship with Alan Lomax. Um, right. You know, he, he was... Traveling great. in the South. And yeah. Probably much in the same way that Mitchum did, when because he was of course, riding the rails. you know, he yeah. rode the rails as a teenager, and mm. you know, loved to talk about his time on the chain gang in Georgia yes. And, yes. and all of that. And it was all part of his sort of personal mythology. And you right. can, that his eyes are like that because he he used to be a boxer, right? And all that sort of silliness. But. No, but there's a story that when he was a child, he was hit by a car, and his you know mother was summoned. And the doctor said, oh, you know, your son obviously has a concussion. And, you you know, look at it. You can tell by his eyes. And she said, oh, no, they always look like that. (laughs) So so I think his eyes were always like that. I think so, too. I know. I think so, too. But Uh, yes, he had all this kind of mythology. Mythology, He had been a boxer. He had been a, you know, worked on a salvage boat and... Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also done other things that are much more unexpected. I mean, he was also, he was a writer. And I mean, yes. that, that connects with the fact that he had worked on the scripts of some of these films. That and he wrote music. He wrote music. Mm. He wrote an oratorio right. about Jewish refugees. He wrote, um, you know, apparently Sunny. wrote, sort of ghost wrote for various people, um, nightclub material Sunny. and so right. forth. So, yeah, he, he had, he had big, great verbal facility and yeah. love he, of he language. He had a great hand in bringing Calypso stateside, too. Yes. Let's not forget. Discovered, uh, <laughs> discovered Mighty Sparrow when he was filming in Trinidad, filming yeah. uh, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, and recorded an album called Calypso is Like So. Mm-hmm. Which must which, be heard to be believed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's yes. right. But yeah. again, he's he, musically... I mean, he's on point. You know, you may take issue with his accent or with the genesis of the project at all, mm-hmm. but he approaches it very respectfully. Yes, he does. And he doesn't condescend to it any more than he did to uh, the song from Thunder Road, Whippoorwill. Which he also wrote. He wrote that too, yeah. <laughs> Before we wrap up, Kent, do you want to talk a bit about later Mitchum? Which you said was your favorite Mitchum. Well, I don't know about my favorite. Well, I mean, you know, the it's whole, hard to pick a favorite. Yeah, but but yeah, I, I'm just before as a as a preface to that, I'm remembering to enlarge on this idea of him kind of separating, making himself distinct from stardom, from the run of the mill stardom and stuff like that. He did have this way of seeing incredibly. I mean, I mean, didn't he come out in favor of the bombing of Hanoi? I interviewed Richard Widmark once, and he was his next door neighbor, and he mm-hmm. he told me, I said, well. <laughs> What was that like? And he said, well, you know, I, I, I got along with him. But I mean, you know, every night he and his wife were screaming at each other. And he said, I, he said, I remember once I, I threw a party for William Shirer, who was the author of The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Widmark had actually gone to Germany in the early 30s and made a little movie on 16 millimeter and brought it back to the States and showed it in libraries and stuff like that. He and a friend of his. And so he was interested in those issues. And he had Shirer come and he said, <laughs> Mitchum just 
commandeered William Shirer and started lecturing him on Nazi Germany. And the guy's like, yeah, well, you know, okay, I guess I know about that. Anyway, I think that the issue of people from older Hollywood adapting themselves to newer Hollywood is, is an interesting one in many Absolutely. cases. A sad one, you know, when you look at the careers of certain directors. I know that there are people who think Otto Preminger did a beautiful job of it. I'm, I would have to disagree. No. You know, um, and there, none of those people are in this room. No, that's true. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just, you know, you could, and for every director like John Huston, who really was able to adopt themselves and kind of remake themselves as different eras went along, there were other people that just, you know, Howard Hawks maybe had a more difficult time of it. I don't know if Mitchum ever got into the new Hollywood spirit. That's, I mean, he w worked for Scorsese in Cape Fear, but in a very, you know, that's a cameo role, and you know, with the other members of the original cast, mm -hmm. like Martin Balsam and Gregory Peck. I think, though, that he did, during the 70s, there was this moment when suddenly there was a different Robert Mitchum. When he was completely at ease with his age, that would begin, I would say, with going home, made in 1971, which is a very, very difficult film to see that we wanted to program and couldn't get a print of it, mm. where he plays the father of Jan Michael Vincent, and he's actually coming out of prison for having murdered his wife and adapting. But then after that, there's the Yakuza. Right. There's Farewell, My Lovely. And in the middle of that, by the way, there's Ryan's daughter, the David Lean film, where he's, he's incredible in that movie. And really gets into the the spirit of it. It was a very tough shoot. Very tough shoot. Um, Apparently, he also did a great David Lean impersonation. Yeah, I'm sure he did. <laughs> um, and then, you know, of, of course, the friends of Eddie Coyle, the the great, really one of the best performances he ever gave. In the Yakuza, he's magnificent too. It's the movie's not as good as the friends of Eddie Coyle. Paul Schrader wrote the script with William Holden in mind. I don't really know what happened, but it works pretty seamlessly with Mitchum. You could take issue with other things in that movie, but you know, Mitchum is really, really a powerful presence in the film. And the same in Farewell, My Lovely, which is not a great movie at all. I mean, it looks like it's lacquered, you know, it's just like, you know, nostalgic with a capital N mm -hmm. um, and Mitchum is way too old to be playing Philip Marlowe, but that's kind of part of the point mm -hmm. um, and way too old to have Charlotte Rampling falling in love with him. Friends of Eddie Coyle, for one thing, is very dear to my heart because it's a Massachusetts movie. There aren't that many of them. I grew up in Massachusetts, albeit on the other end of it, but still, you know, I wasn't in Boston, but to see something that builds a real credible movie world out of Boston is is always great. It's based on a novel by a great, great writer of dialogue who I think was probably better than Elmore Leonard, um, George V. Higgins. I mean, when you read his novels, they just come off the page and, you know, come alive in the dialogue. As I remember it, the dialogue in the movie is pretty much straight taken out of the book. It's about a very, very low-level gangster who is trying to beat a rap for bringing liquor over the state border, I guess. And he's mm -hmm. got to go up for sentencing in New Hampshire. And he doesn't want to, so he's turning state's evidence and all of these different layers of really small-time gangsters who are also, you learn at certain points, they have their own relationships with the cops. It's what some people know about other people and don't know themselves and it's very complex while seeming very simple as you're watching it but it's a film made shot in autumn 
so it's got a very autumnal mood to it. It's got a very autumnal score to it. The feel of it is extremely autumnal, and the feeling of impending death is there from the beginning of the movie. And you really do get the feeling from the beginning of the movie that the character that Mitchum's playing is going to be is going to die before the film is over, and that it won't be a glorious death. And I think that you know he went about playing the part by, you know, he says, he claims that he got to know people in the Winter Hill gang, that's the Whitey Bulger gang, and then he got a, a, a Boston haircut, <laughs> which looks like, you know, he stuck his head under like, you know, some automatic, you know, or, or took one of those comb haircutting Lobies. things that they used to have. My father used to use them. It was just like, <laughs> fucking nightmare. Anyway, but I think that the, the minute he sits down at a table, the raincoat that he's wearing throughout most of the movie, mm. the weariness of his character, the way that he tries to cuddle up with his wife when, you know, in the scene where they're at home. Yeah, every, it's morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so oh, Eddie. Yeah, you know, and then, you know, when he's a lot of this movie, you know, you know, is interactions between two people, you know, whether they're walking together like Peter Boyle and Richard Jordan. Whether it's Stephen Keats and Jack Kehoe in a car, the movie's a feast of great character actors. You know, some of the Boston accents are better than others. It doesn't matter. Alex Rocco was a member of the Winter Hill Gang and allegedly, you know, went into witness protection and then <laughs> turned up in The Godfather, getting his eyes shot out as Mo Green. Mo and Green. you know, Whitey Bulger's like, oh, so that's what happened to that guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wonder whatever became of Alex Rocco. Um, so, but but Mitchum in the movie, the very first scene in the film where he's sitting across from Stephen Keats as the gun dealer in this incredibly low-life kind of cafeteria yeah. and explaining why he has six knuckles instead of just five and yeah. um, why, you know, uh, he doesn't want to be bullshitted and he just wants to get things done the right way and if they aren't done the right way, he's going to know it and, you know, he's going to let this guy know it, you know, in no uncertain terms. It's very, the fatalism is not, does not feel like a, like a tarted up, you know, invention. It feels like it emanates right from his being. And that comes from everything that happens in the movie, including as he gets more desperate, he, his character at a certain point becomes more desperate because he gets screwed over by the cops. But he does it in a very, very quiet way. That's the way that that movie happens. Devastating things happen very quietly. So he's completely in the same key as the movie Again, <laughs> it's a different director, British director. You would never know it from watching the movie. It's an all-American kind of experience, Peter Yates. But I don't know. I'm, I'm in awe of that performance. Well, he was so good at modulating his charisma. And in that role, he makes himself ordinary, which is one of the most remarkable things he ever achieved, which is just to make himself unremarkable. He's lucky to have made it this long. He doesn't have great survival skills. He's not lucky. He's not a leader. His death is foregone. And that's a great point. And perhaps that's also one of the things that led to that sort of flowering at that point in his career is that that idea of making himself ordinary is something that he couldn't have done so much when he was younger because as he's aging and he did not age particularly well, I mean, physically, he's able to do that, that you can buy him as this guy who just, you know, lives in a little house and takes out the garbage in the morning and is not that bright, right. you know, and he's, but it's, it's fascinating because you completely believe that. And at the same time, he is totally riveting, like in that scene 
Mm. in the cafeteria. He's riveting, and yet he's also completely convincing as a very, very ordinary, unexceptional person. Who really doesn't want to have their hand broken again. Yes, (laughs) and doesn't want to to do any more time. Listen, it's not that much, but I can't do it. (laughs) That's what's so poignant, and I think that sort of happened at that point in his career mm-hmm. right. as he was no longer sort of visually so and and you know so such a, a sexual presence as he was in right. his earlier number four Bob your I was gonna say you know you were talking about the actors you know the great character actors in this film and it's like you could you th- it's hard to think of any other leading man from the you know the classical Hollywood era who could just slip themselves into something like that because it's like you couldn't get like could Cary Grant pull that off no <laughs> like wow. he could, I mean that's sort of a ludicrous okay that's a that's a very uh, you, you obvious it, example yeah. that's no. a very leading example but you know what I mean it's like there's not a there's not this huge gap between the the type of performance that they're giving like there is just sort of this they're very much yeah. on the same wavelength yeah. or even if Cary Grant could would he allow himself to exactly and that's another thing about about Mitchum is that half of it is ability and then half of it is just shedding of inhibitions mm-hmm. and um, just trusting the audience to accept him in this different milieu. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to just disagree with you and say he wasn't <laughs> alone there. I mean, you know, no. Burt Lancaster could and did. I didn't um, say he was the only it, uh, one. I didn't say no, okay. he was the only no, one. No, but I mean, a few of them did. You know, <laughs> William Holden did yes, very yes. well. You know, um, um, Robert Ryan certainly did. Yes. It's just that but they all had fatal, you know, fatalisms and part, they were, of, part of who they were. And they were all right. late 40s into 50s actors as opposed to. Right. And they also had and Robert Ryan also used to be a boxer. He had a sort of a rough and tumble life before he got on the screen. Yeah. Well, he was, yes, he was, yeah. he, had, he had a career as a boxer and he was a Marine, you mm-hmm. know, but he lived a pretty, pretty nice life <laughs> I, <laughs> um, in Chicago. He was, he was well taken care of. And it's all these men who had, of course, come of age during the Depression, yeah. which I always think might have right. something to do with it. I mean, Ryan did grow up in a fairly well-to-do family, but then when he got out of college, it was like the depth of the Depression. There w- right. weren't any jobs of the kind that he wanted, and he did kind of knock around. And a lot of these, I mean, Mitchum, one way in which he's perhaps not as unique is that he belonged to this kind of generation of men in Hollywood who had come through these really kind of rough and tumble lives and had been, you know, done a lot of manual labor or, you know, been mm-hmm. in been in the army, been sailors or hopped freight trains or whatever. And they kind of bring that to the screen. And it's something that you have at that time. And also perhaps some of the kind of fatalism of the depression era yeah. and that sense you know of of desperation mm-hmm. although kirk douglas doesn't have it which is interesting interesting especially since he was one of the grew up one of the poorest yeah of all but he's but, so but naturally he has such a drive mm-hmm. and mitchum has a has a passivity and a kind of willingness to lose an acceptance an yeah. acceptance of it but I, I would say, though, that in terms of what you're saying about his aging, part of that, though, is him being willing to go there because, I mean, when he wanted to, like on the Dick Cavett show, I mean, you know, yeah. that, that, that he, he, he was, still has the charisma, you know, absolutely. And it's he not the charisma did, in that instance, in that interview of a movie star. To me, when I'm watching that interview, I feel like I'm watching a poet, you know. Yes. I mean, that he's just, first of all, he looks like, I don't know what drug he 
before the, <laughs> the, the, the interview started. He's just like, well, the, uh, you know, he's, he's, he just, he's riding a wavelength. He's tuned into something and he's just like letting it, letting it go. And it's just beautiful to watch. It reminds me of a phrase that De Niro came up with to describe Marlon Brando. It's the poetry of his whole being, mm. you know, mm. and with Mitchum, that's always the way it is, I think. And we should mention that you can watch his appearance on the Dick Cavett show, the whole thing. It's an yes. hour-long yep. interview. Well and worth a watch. Well worth a is. watch. We can end it there. But before we do, it would be great if each of us went around and said a film that we saw recently that we liked. I saw a restoration of Kiss Me Deadly, and that was just sticking with old movies. It was quite an experience. I sat, I was forced to sit in like the front row, so I was just like staring up at uh, the action. And what can you say about a great movie except for it's great? <laughs> I, I like the idea that they know what atom bombs can do, but they also kind of don't understand what it can do, and that makes the plot very interesting. Or makes the movie more enjoyable, let's say. I think that Mother... Mother! Exclamation point. Um, is a wildly yes. ambitious, crazy ex movie experience that I really found very impressive. And I think that the whole reaction to it is indicative of a really unfortunate turn of events in the film world in yeah. general. Well, it's been a dry spell in the theater, but I, I did, for, a, for an upcoming uh, blog post for FilmCom, and I, I rewatched The Age of Innocence, mm. uh, Martin Scorsese's 1993 film which he called the most violent movie he ever made. And you watch it and you can see why. The cruelty is so calculated and, and so hushed. And uh, it's set in this world of 1870s Gilded Age New York and just the way that people destroy each other with a whisper. Mm -hmm. Japan, astonishing. as far as that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh devastating. <laughs> The other night, I was very excited to discover on Filmstruck that they had uh, Rene Claire's film, Les Grands Manoeuvres, which I had actually seen once before, but um, not for a long time and, you know, had always wanted to see again. It's not easy to see. It's a film from the early 50s. It was his first color film. It's got Gerard Philippe and Michelle Morgan in a period film, which just works really beautifully. I think it has a wonderful sense of movement and that kind of musicality that is always in Claire's films, but it also has this arc where it starts as very much of a kind of light comic film and then somehow develops into a very, to, to have a very devastating ending. Seek it out. Yes. Filmstruck sponsors this podcast, so if you're not using it, uh, okay, I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, but uh, happy to give them a plug. Hell yeah! Why not? We can get uh, foreign. So thank you all for coming. This was excellent. You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine or check out our app available on Android and iOS at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.